0: It's Wednesday, August the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Four and a half years ago, Suzanne Lynch arrived in Washington, D.C. to take up her brand new job as the Irish Times' Washington correspondent. In that role, she would have a ringside seat for the extraordinary spectacle that was the four-year term of the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And during that time, she's been on this podcast a fair few times, but now she's getting ready to move on. We thought it would be a good idea for a debrief, Suzanne.
1: Sounds good, Hugh. Um, delighted to join you from my last few days here in Washington. Let's go back
0: to early 2017. You you arrived in what I suppose would have been still wintry Washington, D.C. Was it just after the inauguration?
1: Yeah, it was about 10 days. I arrived at the 1st of February, so it was around 10 days after the inauguration. And like everybody else, I had watched the outcome of the American election. I'd assumed, like every most people, um, that it was probably going to be a President Clinton in the White House. So um, in one sense, I suppose looking back now, I, I mean, I arrived at one of the um, one of the best times journalistically, but also one of the the darkest times for many people uh, in recent American history under a president like Trump. Um, and from the get-go, uh, people will remember his inauguration speech where he talked about American carnage. Uh, he very, you know, he very much lived up to that. He was talking about the American carnage, this mythical, American carnage that he thought he saw across the landscape of America. And in fact, the irony became that he very much introduced that, I think, uh, to Washington and to the country and presided over a very, very divisive uh, four years. And his, his influence is still being felt. So it was a very dark uh, moment. It was freezing cold here. And um, but from the get go, as I said, um, there was this constant churn of news and the cycle became for the next four years just A a tweet filled, you know, policy by tweet. Uh, Trump's, you know, the inner workings of the White House became an infatuation for all of us working here and, of course, most people around the world to the extent that it probably blocked a lot of coverage of other, you know, social histories that history that was happening everyday, ordinary life in America. Um, But it was a really, I think it's been a really unique time to be a journalist here for that reason, just because of this um, relentless. News cycle that uh, Trump presided over.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that people don't necessarily realise is that, uh, on the face of it, it's a very attractive and very exciting job. At from a journalistic point of view, anyway, a really, really interesting time, possibly the most interesting time in a, in in a couple of generations. But it's also really hard work. I was having a scan back through your articles over the last four and a half years. It would take me a few weeks to have a full scan back through them because there are literally. Thousands of them. So especially when you're working in a part of the world where there's a there's a time difference between you and the newspaper. It mm-hmm. can be quite awkward, things happen overnight from an Irish point of view. It must have been pretty draining at times as well.
1: Yeah, I have to say that's one of the big challenges here for all foreign correspondents is the time difference. So for example you know, we we we're, were web first and I write for the web, but also a lot of my work was maybe writing a front page story. So the deadline in Ireland would be about, you know, nine o'clock, 10, 10 p.m. really, you know, they'd really need to have the story and that would be five o'clock here. And I remember a few instances, one in particular, um, when Trump fired James Comey, the head of the FBI, I had just left my house. It was about, it was very late in, in the day in terms of the, the deadline. Ireland was 5.30 p.m. And then I get a call from our news desk saying, I think this is big news. And I was kind of like, oh, is it? You know, this was in the middle of the chaos. And then it took me about five minutes and I said, hang on, this is huge news. I had to cancel my plans, go back. And then it was literally one of those moments where they were were holding the front page and I had 10 minutes maybe to write um, what was happening. And of course, nowadays, you know, you can update for online. But of course, you know, newspapers still go to print. And you always had this gap that I had to write something that was... 100% accurate because there would be, um, you know, a seven hour gap that something else could have happened in that time before the print would appear. So it was always a very, very tricky moment. So that was a constant battle that if something would happen here around three o'clock in the day and I would then have to scrap what I'd written for the day, start writing again and try and get on top of a story that was developing by the second sometimes. So it was thrilling, but it was also exhausting in that sense. Um, and as I said, you, you did really feel like, you know, it was part of a broader issue that Trump's skill was that he he drove the media line. He drove the media schedule. And in this such a unique way, the way he used Twitter that we'd never seen before. Um, we were kind of at his beck and call in a way. And people felt they had to respond to him in his time, be it from the back of his car, be it from him watching TV in in the West Wing um, and that meant that he just had this huge control in some way over the media narrative and over the pace of um, how he spun... The day's news events,
0: and of course, you know, he—I uh, think Steve Bannon in particular—wasn't behind the defense in terms of admitting that you know, creating an enemy out of the media, making the media the opposition, was a was a core part of the strategy. And then part of that was just throwing chaos at them all the time and keeping them on their heels. I wonder what that's like for the international press corps in Washington, as opposed to the domestic press corps.
1: Yeah, well, this is interesting because I arrived here from Brussels, from four years in Brussels, where Ireland is obviously one of the members of the the European Union. So, you know, I had great access in Brussels um, as the representative from the Irish Times. I used to go for briefings with Donald Tusk, the European Council president, or the head of the commission. I interviewed, you know, the head of the commission, the head of NATO. And as one of the correspondents for an Irish newspaper, I got this great access, the same way as my counterpart in Le Monde or El Pais or the other European papers would, So then I come to America where, you know, it's not you don't have any skin in the game. You're much more it's much more a traditional foreign correspondent role where you're here as an individual looking at a different country and trying to uh, describe and communicate what's happening back to your readers at home. But in saying that, and this is one of the ironies um, of of the Trump administration, I was pleasantly surprised at the access. So in my first few days, you know, I, I kind of said, well, what's, how do we get to the White House briefings? And, you know, I was allowed to just go in uh, every day to those briefings at one o'clock. And the White House briefing room, people were was remembered from shots on the TV, you have seen Sean Spicer and now Jen Psaki. It's a very, very uninspiring room. It's very small, very narrow. And the kind of, you know, the, the shabby beauty of it is that it's, it's in the West Wing. It's, you know, around the corridor from the Oval Office. But it is a very, very confined space, not a very a big space compared to, for example, the big briefing room in the European Commission in Brussels. Um, and it was kind of a strange feeling that, you know, you kind of applied every week to, to get in. And, and then they did. You gave your details. It was a Secret Service check. And then you just somebody sometimes had to escort you. Now I have a what's called a hard pass where I can get in whenever whenever I want. But um, and then all of a sudden you were in and, you know, there's the West Wing. So I was I was quite surprised at that. Similarly, at the US Capitol, um, it's the people's house, as they like to say. And I suppose this would be in, in keeping with other parliaments around the world, but a very good access there. Now, you know, we know where this ended up on January the 6th about security. But um, I do feel I had a lot of access there. Uh, one of the advantages, and it's an obvious point, is the Irish angle. And um, it's in a couple of ways. Um, one way is that you immediately have contacts with Irish-American members of Congress who know you and who will, um, you know, meet you for lunch and, you know, keep you posted about anything, particularly that's happening about Ireland, but other, other topics. And I know, I remember speaking to a Spanish colleague and she kind of said, how do you know all these these congressmen? And I said, well, it's the Irish-American, you know, identity. They're they're very uh, tuned into it and they wanted to talk. And the same in the administration, both now Biden and the Trump administration, there were Irish-Americans so um, you know it was a way in with a lot of those officials. Um, but the other point is, I think, uh, and this is not to sound too xenophobic, when you are writing in the English language, it's different. So I've tended to be kind of pooled in with the the British, the Australians, um, maybe the Canadians, but they they're, they have an even closer relationship. But you were you were seen kind of differently, I think, to you know, if I was a Czech reporter or a Polish reporter, because simply people are not reading your copy where they may be if you're writing in English. So I, I have to reflect on that, that it, there was a lot more access. And I can tell you, it was a lot more easy to get into the White House and get into the European Commission and uh, with the layers of physical and metaphorical bureaucracy. Um, some of that may be down to First Amendment here. There's a huge emphasis on freedom of the, of the press, a freedom of speech. Um, so, yeah, it was a great experience to go to all those Trump press conferences. Um, for example, I was there the day after, people may remember this moment, when Donald Trump took on CNN's Jim Acosta, it was uh, just after the midterm elections in two thousand and eighteen, and it was a really acrimonious exchange. And I, you can see in the co- coverage, you can see my me in the background, kind of looking horrified and trying to you know, keep typing on my laptop. But that was that was a, a, an incredible feeding. We were in the East Room, and just you know, felt like a, a, a physical altercation was about to break out and the place is bristling with secret service.
0: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that because obviously we see all these things on the television and I and I watching them myself and watching them back afterwards I always wonder how much of it is theater and how much of it feels like theater in in the room in the cramped little room or does it really feel unpleasant.
1: Mm. So in the White House briefing room that feels like you're in a classroom, you know, a secondary school classroom. It it doesn't feel like this you know, hugely significant moment when you're at those briefings. But I can tell you for sure, I was very close to Donald Trump in the Oval Office lots of times. And he was an extremely physically imposing person. He's, he's physically huge. He's well over six foot two, um, overweight, a big guy. And he just had this, I mean, people will have seen him, clips of him prowling around the stage behind Hillary Clinton. That was his whole persona. So when he, uh, he had a very kind of aggressive presence, I felt uh, generally. And then in that moment with Jim Acosta, it was, it was shocking because all I could think of was, I have been at press conferences with Angela Merkel or David Cameron or, you know, Leo Varadkar. To imagine that happening, uh, you know, at a press conference where this person, the magician, asked a question and, and he had taken him on and it was this awful uh, interaction. It was just shocking. It was kind of an example of, how how far Trump was pushing the boundaries all the time, and that was that was my comparison. Going, this would be this would never happen in a, in any other modern democracy I can think of, quite frankly.
0: And wouldn't have happened. Anybody would have thought with the president of the United States up to now. But this was his mm-hmm. unique selling point, wasn't it? The fact that he would do the things that nobody else would would do.
1: Yeah, and it was theater. I mean, to use you know you were talking about theater there. It was theater in his part. He did that for the cameras. Um, you know, this was, and again, it's what I was talking about there about his relationship with the media. Like some people say it was a very tough time to be, obviously he he has demonized the media, but he had this paradoxical, ambivalent relationship to the media that he actually wanted the attention. And like one comparison, for example, just this St. Patrick's Day, um, I was in the Oval Office for Joe Biden's, it was a virtual meeting with Hall Martin. So I went in and there was a small number of reporters and we thought there was a couple of Irish. We were we were sure, you know, we'd shout a question at Joe Biden saying, oh, of course he's going to answer because he loves Ireland. And he didn't. So we were in the in the Oval Office, only a few of us going, oh, Mr. President, Ireland, and he just looked straight ahead of him. And I came out of it thinking, he is so incredibly disciplined, Joe Biden, when he wants, you know, he, if he's not going to, doesn't want to answer a question, he won't. Whereas Donald Trump could not resist a microphone in front of him. I did those St. Patrick's Day meetings with him before, and every time Trump, you know, he could speak for 13 minutes and go on a riff about the ladies in North Korea or the ladies on trade. Um, but just he had this love-hate relationship with the media that I think was so much part of, of the energy and, and and part of his skill as a politician that he, you know, he staged a lot of those those events, those conflicts with journalists. Um, and he wanted to show to his face that he was ready to stand up to, as he sees it, kind of enemies of the state, be it the media, be it the security services, be it his own own uh, party, the Republican Party. So it was part of his brand.
0: Can I ask you, um, because you would have worked alongside a lot of those journalists from places like The New York Times and CNN, The Washington Post. I mean, I get the impression or I have the opinion sometimes when we see their coverage up close, particularly during the last election, that they kind of got suckered into taking on that opposition role, which Trump wanted them to go into. And they they seem to have, I don't want to overstate it, but actually, I think this is definitely true of CNN. They seem to have fallen into opinionating on one side of the argument mm-hmm. too much, and that therefore actually to have lived up to the stereotype, which the tag which Trump was looking to put on them.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you're right in that I think it's a broader, I mean, it's one of the the shocks I got when I when I arrived here um, was how partisan the media is. And there's a broader debate to be had, of course, about a public service broadcaster. Um, but yeah, Fox News, which is so, so biased in its coverage. But yes, a lot of um, CNN and MSNBC also are very, very pro-democratic. There's no two ways it's about it. And and that's what they, it, it's down to money. I mean, the, the profits of these media companies are enormous, particularly TV here. And uh, one thing, again, that I noticed in comparison to Europe was that of the primacy of, of TV. So, um, for example, just to use the example of Brussels again, um, in Brussels, say those briefings I mentioned at the beginning with Donald Tusk or whoever, uh, you know, with some of his officials, a lot of the times that would be limited to print newspaper people. So, you know, the, the the correspondent for whatever paper of each country and not TV. It was completely reversed when I came here. It was, you know, people, This is a this is a city, Washington, it just kind of works around who's the pundit on CNN, on MSNBC, on Fox. And I think the White House notices that. They want to communicate to those audiences. Um, one other aspect of this is that, and people might see this, if you watch a whole press briefing, particularly in the Trump days, you'll have one reporter getting a question, and then you'll say, hang on, why is it the next reporter asking basically the same question? That's because they want a clip of themselves asking the question, which is, you know you know, there's obviously major ethical issues about that. That is not the role of a press briefing. The press briefing is that these members of the press who are privileged to be in a press conference with the president should be asking questions of him on behalf of the public, essentially. That's the role, not that they get a clip that can be then played on their own channel. So, um, you know, and then the money talks here, I mean... You know, we might talk about this, but, you know, they have a travelling press pool. But the um, the cost of that, that's borne by the uh, by the network or the publication, which is good in a way. It's not borne by the taxpayers. But some of these bills to travel with a president abroad can be six-figure bills. I mean, it can be enormous sums. So I think there's an issue there that the more deep-pocketed po- you are, you kind of get more access. And, you know, it shouldn't be like that. Now, to be fair, at the moment, um, I know the White House initiated the thing in the the last few months where they were taking um, dial-in questions from journalists across the country, which was, I thought, a great idea. They've also included a much wider group in the pool, including myself and lots of regional papers. So there is a move to expand this. Um, But yeah, the dominance of TV is definitely something that's, uh, you know, a characteristic of American culture but also very much a characteristic of the political world here in Washington.
0: And can I ask you, I mean, it might be difficult for you to answer this because you landed into this just at this moment of high drama when Trump had just been elected. But this is, as you've kind of indicated there, it's a company town and the business of the town is politics, whether you're an elected politician or a staffer or a lobbyist or you work in the media or anything. And they just had this bomb thrown into their, what for many of them was probably a relatively cosy life. Was there a sense of that there, that they're kind of shock or maybe awe or some combination of the two?
1: I mean, I think, there's a, again, there, there, there is definitely something in that. Um, there's, a, there's a broader debate, which is an interesting one, about I mean, the BBC is struggling with this as well, about the left-leaning nature of a lot of journalists and, uh, you know, a lot of media professionals. Mark Levin, who is a very well-known Fox News commentator, but kind of writes interesting stuff, he wrote a book about this recently, which he kind of annihilates the mainstream media, saying they're left-wing. Um, Now, obviously, Trump was using this as a stick to beat the media with, and I'm not, I'm not condoning that. But you are right in that probably, you know, ultimately a lot of journalists here probably, you know, agreed with the political views of Obama, for example, Um, you know, or the classic case, this this is going back a long time, but uh, Ben Bradley, the legendary editor of the the Washington Post and reporter, he was extremely close with John F. Kennedy to an extent that no one knew at the time that how close he was personally to him. Um, So there's a bit of a feel about that at the moment because a lot with the Biden administration, a lot of the officials who worked in the Obama administration, like the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, like the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, they were all around in the Obama days in different roles. Now they're back. So, you know, I can see it with some of the journalists who are here since the Obama administration. They're kind of almost relieved, you know, the good guys are back. Um, but look, I mean, it's, it's not to condone Trump in any way, but it is an interesting uh, idea, you know, how you know, the whole issue of media objectivity here and, um, you know, how journalists put aside those personal views uh, to, to try and report. Actually, one memory just just come back to me as I, as I speaking to you here. I remember in, it was June 2017, and it was, it was the day that Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. And I went to the press conference in the Rose Garden. And ironically, because of climate change, it was a scorching hot day. People were kind of sending around suntan cream to each other, trying to help. And he got up and he, he gave this most inflammatory speech. I can't remember the details about why he was putting out a climate change um, agreement in Paris. And I remember just one of the American journalists beside me just kind of whispered and said, my God. And there was silence from everyone around me. And then he finished his, his speech, his inflammatory speech, looking into the camera. It took about 90 minutes, as it usually did. And everyone was just said nothing just quietly put away their equipment. And I remember sitting there thinking, God, how would I feel if this was my country? And I felt for them. Um, And then they got up and they did their piece to camera and tried to be, you know, say what just happened by the president. So, you know, I am sympathetic. It must be very difficult to cover a president to mean, that close to something that was, in many minds, so damaging uh, to America.
0: That question of uh, of America as a whole, and, and just setting aside for the moment, the last year and a half of COVID and the election campaign and the way that panned out. But, but before that, obviously part of the gig is to get out and get some sense of the real America and what people are thinking around that huge uh, and very varied country. And you would have had a chance to do that certainly in the first uh, three years Mm -hmm. or so that, that you were there. And I always wonder how much of a disjunction there is. Sometimes I, I read pieces or hear people saying that the kind of the apparent madness at the top of, government is not actually reflected in what's happening in the in the towns and the cities of America and then other people you know particularly in light of some of the things that have happened around black lives matter and george floyd and things say actually this is a you know a powder keg at the moment what did you see and what do you think
1: well i suppose you know, looking at the first couple of years, I did a lot of travel around America and everyone was after the same story. Like, how did we get this wrong? And let's go and, and talk to Americans about why they voted for Trump. And there's a lot of focus on the Rust Belt um, areas, which I have traveled to Pennsylvania and spoke to people there. And to me, that was quite obvious um, why those people voted for Trump. And I could understand it. These were people who who had lost their jobs. One reason being globalization, a lot of the reasons being technological change. But I, there was a there was a tech, you know, there was an economic reason there that was, you know, completely rational to me why they had, you know, Bill Clinton had signed trade deals and they felt that they had been left behind by the Democratic Party. So I kind of, you know, that was easy enough to conceptualize. But as you went further south and west, you know, people then voted for Trump for very different reasons. And that was mostly cultural issues. It was the fact that abortion in this country is still a hugely, hugely divisive issue. And, you know, people, millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump and will vote Republican no matter who it is, because they see the Democratic Party as being um, too pro-choice. And that is the reason they vote. And over the last 20 years or so, this goes back to the time of Clinton and Newt Gingrich when he was in the the House. I mean, polls show this. You're much more, less likely now to vote for the opposing party, if you like, to switch vote than you would would have been twenty or thirty years ago. So um, the Republican Party, in particular, has moved more to the right, and um, they've they've captured that kind of cultural identity politics. The Democrat Party have actually got a different problem because they have got all these disparate groups. So part of the Democratic Party are moving more and more to the left, to the point that some centrists like Joe Biden are trying to rail against that, saying. Slogans like defund the police in, in parts of, you know, Oregon, you know, we're going to lose middle ground voters if if we start, you know, embracing these various as they see them, extreme views. So they're trying to always keep their party in check. I think the Republicans have kind of, in a more clever way, in one way, consolidated their vote. And they're now, there's, there's swathes of the country you know, I went to Kansas and um, to visit Irish friends who were living there, actually. And I did a, 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 I did a piece about the the farming vote. I mean, you would not find a Democrat voting. You know, it for five hundred miles, just everybody was cultured there. They were voting for Republican. That was it. Um, so that's the worry about the country that these views are seen as so entrenched, and there are two Americas. But I think the Americas are on cultural identity issues, um, like abortion um like religion, um and things more more so now and over the last couple of years on race and the whole debate about you know American history and the Black Lives Matter movement in the in the wake of the George Floyd protest. So this has become the new fault line. But the, the the culture wars here are very, very strong and that that's what Trump I think tapped into. Get the inside track in marketing with the Inside Marketing Podcast. Every fortnight, we talk to some of the leaders of the Irish marketing
0: industry and beyond. Whether it's the death of the cookie, the future of search, or exploring the world of gaming. Find out what it means for marketing in Ireland. Follow Inside Marketing to get inside marketing. Brought to you by Dentsu Ireland and the Irish Times Media Solutions. Available on all major podcast platforms. One of the things that's always struck me about America, it's really obvious, but it struck me anyway, so I'll say it. I mean, I lived there for a couple of years myself in the 1980s, is it's a country that changes a lot faster than most countries do. And that's partly because it's a country of, it still is a country of immigration and the melting Mm. pot. There are all kinds of it's huge, there are all kinds of tensions and different interests in, in conflict with each other um, all the time. So the argument of 10 years ago can be very different from the argument of of 10 years time. But as you say, something that's clearly happened is is what they call the great sorting, isn't it? And that, you know, places that used to be politically mingled or heterogeneous are now you won't see a, a red voter anywhere in a blue city and you won't see a blue voter anywhere in a red suburban or red rural area and all of that is very bleak for any prospect of some kind of more um more pragmatic and collaborative politics breaking out in the in the foreseeable future isn't it
1: Yeah, it is. And I mean, Joe Biden kind of campaigned on I can reach across the aisle. I'm a centrist Democrat who has spent my whole 36 years in the Senate working with Republicans. Um, But, you know, some people would say that's naive. You know, so far now he is getting through this infrastructure package as we speak, which he's got 17 votes from Republicans in the Senate. But then, you know, infrastructure is something that everybody likes um, you, know, you, you know, you're know, you not, you're, everybody's constituents are going to like more money for the roads and rails. Although interestingly, and this is just a tiny example of this, one of the issues in this massive package that's going through is that the um, members that represent cities and more democratically and wanted more money for public transport. And the, the Republicans who represent more rural parts of the country want more money on roads and highways because they don't really do public transport. So you can kind of see these divisions even creeping into a, a policy or a Legislative priority that has broad backing. Um, so Biden's issue, I, I think a lot of people in, on the Democratic side were burned during Obama's time because he he took office at the beginning of you know, the financial crash and they pushed through a huge expansive fiscal package and he he worked a lot as did Biden with Republicans in Congress to try and get you know a deal everyone could sign up to. And really what people say is that they negotiated, they changed things, they watered it down. And ultimately, you know what? None of the Republicans voted for it anyway. So you kind of get burned from that experience. Um, So it is worrying uh, that, you know, this is Biden cast himself as a great unifier. And we'll see. We're only six months into this. But from what you can sense from um, both the politicians here and Fox News that, you know, Biden is equally demonized as Hillary Clinton was or Nancy Pelosi or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, um so you know if he can't kind of reach across the aisle you know a white older some people think well in a, in his previous years um conservative if he can't reach out to um republican conservatives like you know who can so it is. it does feel that these two parts of America really are not talking to each other.
0: Although there might be a flicker of hope in the fact that I think a, a relatively substantial number of Republican senators have signed up to this particular infrastructure bill, at least, which which didn't mm. happen under Obama. So to some extent, Biden has been yeah. justified, at least to some extent. But let me ask you a kind of a further question about that, which kind of runs deeper on that. And it's really, it's my, my it's my big question, really, which is, isn't America completely screwed? Because the forms of government it has, which were largely devised in the 18th century at a very different time, a very different place, and very different people with very different values, have been sort of become baked into their system. There's no sign really of constitutional change that might address something like the problems with the Electoral College, the unrepresentative nature of the Senate, the bizarre lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court, the the right that political parties have to gerrymander when they're in control. All of these things accumulate to create a system which, you know, it, by international standards of democracies, doesn't look terribly democratic at times.
1: Absolutely, you're right. And this, the sanctity of the Constitution is something that astounds me all the time here. Um, be it, you know, the right to bear arms, which was obviously, you know, introduced in a very, very different context. And actually, there's limits to that. But or... Um, You know the electoral college system or the supreme court justice issue. There is no political will really on any for anyone to change this. Now there has been some discussion. Um, for example, in the last few months, there's been a real move to try and give Washington DC statehood. So Washington DC is a is a district, the District of Columbia. Um, so the people here don't have full representation. And as Washington DC, it's it's a small geographic area, so a lot of people live in the surrounding areas of Maryland or Virginia. But the reason that Republicans in the Senate will ultimately block that from happening, unless Democrats get a huge majority, um, is because there's a huge black vote in Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. is very, very democratically leaning. So there's a the reason. So that's one example of um, of how unrepresentative this system is. Um, but even after Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016... I was surprised that in the wake of that, there wasn't a huge conversation about, well, look, let's have a look at the electoral college system. The other thing that um, I think is going to be interesting to watch in the next election cycle is a caucus and the the primary system for electing uh, leaders or electing candidates for elections. So I travel to Iowa for the Iowa is the first in the nation primary contest. And they hold a caucus, and it's this kind of traditional um, oldie America, harking about people gathering in school halls and village halls. And they cast their vote by putting their hand up. Now, I went to one in a school hall and I was kind of at the side with other reporters. And I was pretty shocked that it seemed utterly chaotic. People were like, oh, is this the rule? Is that the rule? And, you know, I was kind of saying, I can't believe, you know, I'm all for a bit of nostalgia. But this seems ridiculous that this is that is this is happening in this way Um then the Iowa caucuses ended up being quite farcical and, you know, votes weren't counted, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they're going to be under pressure to secure their first in the nation status, as they called it. But to me, you know, that should be revised, that system, that there's no reason why Iowa and New Hampshire um, should go first in that process. The other thing is Iowa and New Hampshire, Iowa in particular, prim- primarily white, primarily rural. So that does not reflect America. Why not have your first in the nation in California or Texas, Um, So, you know, that's an example of something that I think is damaging. And um, yeah, there just does not seem to be the political will to change it. But this kind of utter respect and deification of the Constitution, to the sense that, you know, we don't have an Ireland, we're much more open to amendments, etc. That has been an interesting, you know, aspect of political life here that really does underpin everything.
0: You mentioned getting to Iowa, of course, you didn't manage to do a campaign trail in the traditional sense because there wasn't a campaign trail because of COVID. I mean I, I always thought I remember as a teenager reading Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, and I thought, well, this is what journalism is like. This seems great. Now obviously I've discovered, sadly, that there's not remotely as many drink and drugs involved in uh, in professional journalism these days as there as there as as appear in that book. But the idea of the presidential campaign trail, we've all read many books about various campaigns over the years, is a certain still has a certain romance to it. But of course that didn't happen last year.
1: It didn't. So Iowa took place, New Hampshire. And then um, we got to we got to Super Tuesday. And that's when it changed for Joe Biden. And he began to, you know, he was he was trailing. If you talk to somebody here in Washington in January, February 2020, there is no way anyone thought he was going to win this. Um, But he did. And things turned around for, for March. So he was quite lucky that things began to just start closing down just when he had won a slew of states in super Tuesday, which i think was march 5th and then from that point on um basically all campaigning was put on hold now you may remember of course donald trump was in denial about covid so he continued having some rallies and um, but after uh, joe biden became the nominee um and he bernie sanders dropped out i think it was probably may or june i think june uh, he became the nominee well then he very much went to ground he was based up in delaware everything was virtual. The Democratic you know, National Convention was virtual. Um, but Trump did do some events. Now, I, as a journalist, I didn't go to any of Trump rallies. I'd been to Trump rallies before, but frankly, I was worried about uh, catching COVID. I did go to some, um, I went to a Donald Trump Jr. event, for example. Um, and then as, you know, two months after the election, from September, I started going to the swing states, states like Michigan, Arizona, Texas, Florida, these states that make or break the election. Um, and again, what you were saying there earlier, uh, Hugh, about, you know, that you're you're absolutely right, the cha- the changing nature of America, it's such, it's always in flux. And states like Texas are just fascinating because um, of the huge Hispanic vote there. They've got, a you know, their population, a lot of these Hispanic young immigrants are now turning 18, where is their vote going to go? At the same time, you've kind of got uh, Democrat leaning uh, millennials or retirees moving to places like Austin, Texas. Um, or, you know, the suburbs of Dallas because it's lower tax and they can't afford property in New York or San Francisco. How is that all going to, you know... This This is a whole new melange of, of people voting in a state like Texas. And if you take someone like George W. Bush, who has now become, you know, seems like kind of a hero to many <laughs> compared to Trump, he actually just printed a book, uh, Portraits of Immigrants in America. He was very clever, and some of the Republicans in Texas were very clever, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and saying... We need to reach out to these Hispanic voters or we're going to be in trouble. They could see the way the demographics are going. And to an extent, it's kind of worked because, I mean, it's a broader issue, but some of the Hispanic vote actually do vote Republican. They, some of them are Catholics. Some of them have strong views on abortion. Um, the low tax, pro-business, you know, idea of Republicans appeals to them. A lot of them are small business owners. Um, so, you know, the per- people who are going to win these races are, are people who can see these demographic changes happening in advance and know that they need to be able to respond to them.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, that's extremely interesting, the way in which there are opportunities the Republican Party there to be taken among the Hispanic vote. And there is a certain kind of smugness in some liberal and democratic circles about the fact that they have a lock on the vote of people of colour, which I think is not, necessary, not necessarily the case. Uh, not necessarily the case at all. Funny, I'm in the middle of reading um, I Alone Can Fix It, which is one of the several books that has come out over the last uh, over the last few weeks about the the last year of the of the Trump presidency and I'm not that far into it at the moment I'm just at the point where covid is about to land and it's very much an inside the Trump campaign kind of a book and they are so confident at that point they believe they have a lock on the thing they think the democrats are in disarray they think they can take on any of the candidates they have a huge financial war chest the economy's going very well they're convinced they're going to win whether or not they were right, isn't it fair to say that it was COVID that really swung this election, probably?
1: Yeah, it may be. I think um, Trump, when Trump made that comment about putting bleach into his arm, like, you know, if you look at the polling around then, then people began to, you know, the polls start going down. He did regain, I think, a bit more in the autumn when he got COVID himself. You remember that? and In a, in a true dramatic flourish, he was helicoptered to a hospital uh, near here, um, in September, just, a, uh, you know, what, six, eight weeks before the election. Um, so, yeah, I think, and I mean, we, we need to, to remember, you know, obviously Joe Biden won this. Um, he won it decisively, but it was by no means, you know, I, I, I would have thought that Joe Biden may have won by a much bigger margin, being quite honest. Um, you know, he won, but like nothing like Obama's first victory or Ronald Reagan's victory. I mean, nothing near that level. So um, it is, you know, it was a wake up call to people. I mean, the problem for Democrats is, like, you know, if they can't win, you know, say Georgia, for example. Georgia was very, very tight in the end. um, And Democrats did win it. And Trump, of course, tried to overturn other results, which is a whole other story. And it's been litigated. Um, But, you know, I was down in Georgia, a really interesting state. Again, some of these demographic changes I, I mentioned that, you know, more middle class people moving into the suburbs of Atlanta. But you had a whole sway of the people say in Atlanta, middle-class women who despised Donald Trump, who were Republican voters um, and who despised him. So they were never going to vote for him. But you know what? If they had a different candidate in four years' time, they're going to go back to Republican. You know, so so the idea being, you know, if you're not going to be able to beat Donald Trump, who are you going to be able to beat? Um, so, like, I think that, that's worrying for Democrats. Um, Trump won Florida, which is a real problem because it's got a huge number of electoral points. Big issue for Democrats there with the Hispanic votes, but but also, you know, so he did, there are some, again, Texas comfortably Republican as well. So, um, you know, there are lessons for that, for the Democratic Party. And as I say, what better foil for most, for a lot of people in this country than having Donald Trump on the ticket? If you had a more palatable candidate in 2024, well, then I think Democrats would be back under pressure in states like Georgia and Arizona, where, uh, which they narrowly won this time.
0: Yeah, but having said that, looking at the huge turnout for Trump, it was the second biggest vote a presidential candidate had ever got, was what he got in the last election. Um, he turned out voters who wouldn't necessarily have turned out for those more moderate Republican candidates, many of them voters who just didn't vote previously. And there is a question if they came out with, with the kind of candidate who appealed to that Republican middle class voter in Atlanta, um, would those other voters turn out for them?
1: That's a very good point. And I, re- I interviewed when I went to rural Ohio and went to a Donald Trump Jr. rally. I remember the people I interviewed there first time voting. They were with the MAGA hats, but they hadn't voted the last time. And that it, it was almost spurring them on the fact that they felt that um Trump could lose this, that he got that vote out. He was a motivating figure. So yes, that's a very, very good point. I mean, this was always the argument on the Democrat side that they felt you know, more more progressive Democrats would say, yeah, Joe Biden might be centrist and he might appeal to some middle ground Republicans, but he's not going to excite anybody. So you're not going to get many voters out to vote for him. Now he got an, enough voters, but people on the left of the party said, no, you need a more exciting candidate. Bernie Sanders will get the numbers out in Michigan. Bernie Sanders will get those young voters. People, you know, so that was quite interesting. In the end, Biden did have enough to get it through in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, those Rust Belt states, but you know, by by a very small margin. So that's going to be a, a question for Democrats looking forward to twenty twenty four too.
0: And speaking of twenty twenty four, one of the one of the thing, things I remember which was very striking. Quite early in the campaign was I think you were on an Irish Times podcast and we were talking about Kamala Harris. And as I say, it was early days yet, and she was definitely seen as one of the one of kind of the strong candidates, one of the three or four front runners. And you were most unimpressed by her. It was at, you, you went to her at a rally at,
1: yeah.
0: I can't remember if it was North Carolina or South Carolina. It was one of the Carolinas anyway. And you really just thought you, she didn't have what it, what it takes. Do I remember that rightly?
1: Yeah, you're right. I remember she came and she, she kind of didn't, it was in a school somewhere. And she didn't really connect with the people. I felt, you know, I felt she was kind of, she was really, really late. She was two or three hours late. She, these people had come out to see her and she didn't really connect. And that was, I mean, that was a case in that she, she really flunked it during the primary can- campaign. She didn't, her, her campaign ended up, for president ended up being very bad. She had to step down because of lack of funding. She had obviously lost the support and she wasn't going to do it. So um, I think there were two problems. She wasn't, her communication was a bit stilted. And the second point, which was, it became more serious, was that she equivocated on policy. So she didn't have, when people say, well, what do you think about Medicare? She was kind of flip-flopping about that, about healthcare, care or on the issue that subsequently became a huge issue, which was crime and, you know, racial profiling by police or prison reform and all that. You know, she had a bit of a mixed record on that. She had been quite tough as in some of her career as district attorney in San Francisco um, but also had like traveled to the border and taken on Trump about his migrant policies. But she wasn't really able to, she, she was too ambivalent. I think they were the two problems for her. Then we come along and look where she is now. She's the VP. Now we know, I mean, it's quite obvious why Biden chose Kamala Harris. She was always the favorite for VP. Once Biden became the nominee, she was always the favorite. Um, obviously, it was obvious. It was kind of reverse of Biden and Obama. She, you know, Biden has the experience. He's a white man. Um, and he wanted to bring in someone that was more reflective of the Democratic voter of America at large. He went for a woman first vice president, female vice president, and a woman of color. So, um, you know, to balance his ticket. So I think that kind of worked for them. The big question, though, maybe this is what you're going to ask me. I mean, will she be, is she going to be a candidate for 2024? Will Biden run? We don't know. Um, but they're being honest, there are a lot of concerns in Washington at the moment about her ability to win an election. Um you know, polls, a very recent polling that has just been done, which, you know, have shown that um, she is not polling that well at the moment. She was given the task by President Biden to kind of deal with the border crisis and went to Guatemala and Mexico and really was seen as not to handle that very well. She kind of got a touchy in an interview, a big primetime interview here. And she also kind of told um, Guatemalans not to come to America So it was a very tricky situation because immigration, you know, they're trying to they're trying to have a both way, both ways, to be honest with you. You know, Biden is trying to keep immigrants out and he's been quite, you know, he's kept some of the executive orders in place. At the same time, keep the more left wing parts of his party happy and seen as a more caring face of, you know, progressive ideas about immigration. So she kind of got stuck with that issue. And I think it's damaged her polling. Um, Of course, though, Hugh, not to be you know negative we still three and a half years of this presidency um you know joe biden is the oldest president in history obviously you know your your main job as a vp is to be the stand-in to be the understudy she is at every single meeting with him every day she goes to the briefing she's learning on the job so i suppose if you were going to he he felt that she was the person that could do the job if something happened to him and i think most people would say yes that that is very true
0: but the case is not proven that she's electable at the at the national at the national level yet a last big question um to you January the sixth was a historic moment in the United States. I still struggle to figure out exactly what kind of a historic moment it was you know it ranges depending on people's political perspectives and other things. It ranges from being a you know a a failure of security and a a shameful riot in in which a number of people certainly died and we should acknowledge that to being a full-blown insurrection to rank with you know almost the events of the civil war or the british burning down the capital in 1812 um how seriously should we take what happened on january the 6th as a um as a as a sign of something really significant happening in the united states
1: i think it is significant um you know it was in many ways there was an air of inevitability about it that day down there. I I was down at the Trump speech that morning, interviewing Trump supporters. It was it was a pretty it was a pretty dangerous atmosphere. But like I'd seen that before, Trump rallies. I was interviewing people. Somebody was shouting my face. F the media. Rudy Giuliani got up and spoke. Donald Trump Jr. got up and spoke, and then Trump did. And I kind of had to get back to start writing. And I said, "Oh, will I go to the Capitol or not?" And I said, "No, I better go. I've I've to write here and write up my copy." And then as it was happening, like everyone else, then. You know, in one way, it was the inevitable culmination of what was probably the most, you know, authoritarian-leaning president in American history, um, and that he was, you know, the symbolism of it—not just at the people's house, but actually, literally, the peaceful transfer of power. That that's what was happening that day. They were they were counting the votes it was a procedural issue for the election, and basically, Donald Trump was not accepting the election. His supporters were going up to protest that. So, you know, the fact it's, it's, you know. The basic tenets of a democracy, you know, freedom of the press, peaceful elections, peaceful transition of power. And if America can't do that, I think they've got a major problem. You're seeing it now at in bodies like the UN. At every moment they get, countries like Russia, countries like China, um, who've got serious issues around authoritarianism, they often cite this to America at the UN and say, well, look, look at you guys. You can't even do your peaceful transfer of power. You can't even... Your, your outgoing president won't accept an election. They will turn to them and say, look at you, America, a black man can be killed by a white police officer who kneeled, pressed his knee on a neck for nine minutes in this horrific fashion. And that's what's happening in your country. So don't lecture us about human rights abuses. So I think Donald Trump has done a huge amount of damage uh, to America, the idea of America, American kind of democracy and its, its status as a country where the rule of law, you know, is, is sacrosanct. Um, and because so many people continue to believe that he won the election and what's happened in the six months since, which has been very worrying, was that all the Republicans who were there at the day on the day and were shaken, most of them have now changed their tune and are trying to downplay it. They all let's move on. You have a few Republicans that are trying to stand up like Liz Cheney, um, but most of them just don't want to know. They they are making the calculation that Donald Trump is still popular. It's, you know, hail the chief and we're going to keep as close to Trump as possible. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty strong indictment of the kind of Republican Party Donald Trump has shaped and left in his wake, even if he does win a run or not again in 2024.
0: So now you're leaving Washington, you're going back to Brussels where you were posted before, albeit you're going to a new employer at, at another media organisation. We're going to be very sorry to see you leave, but Brussels, a nicer place. Are you looking forward to getting back there and getting out of Washington?
1: Well, there's it's plus and minuses. I miss um I miss the weather. I have to say because Brussels uh is a very rainy place, but it does have very good chocolate, beer, and uh, frites. Uh, but no, what I most miss most about America, I have to say, even though as I said in one way, I was here at the more negative times in American history. Um, I miss the people, the American people. Uh, they're very you know they they're very welcoming. Uh, they're great company. They're warm. Um, and I, and this, it's a beautiful country. I mean, I've seen a lot of America and have stunning geographic landscape. Um, so they're the kind of things, and I suppose I, I end up in a more positive place. I mean, as you said there, Hugh, it's, it's the main point that it's constantly changing. I mean, America, like every country is constantly being redefined. It goes through crises. It comes out of that, you know, it's constantly a work in progress. And I think, you know, ultimately America is still a great country. It's gone through a bumpy few years, but, um, yeah, it's, it's still a great place to live and work. So, yeah, sad to be leaving, sad to be leaving at the Irish Times too after a wonderful time, um, but look, looking forward to a new stage in Brussels too.
0: Well, Suzanne, as they say in America, thank you for your service and really the best of luck uh, in the years ahead with your career and the fantastic job that you've you've done for us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Condon. We're going to be back very soon. Remember, you can mail us with your thoughts or your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We'll see you soon.